Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. My guest today is Greta Brinkman. This was recorded about six years ago, and she talks about being a resident of Richmond, Virginia, and she also talks about wanting to move to Berlin. So update on this amazing bass player. She lives in Berlin now. She is in no less than four bands, and look for in uh, spring of 2019 a project release that involves her Troy Gregory, Ted Parsons, Joel Gostin, and other Pigface members. A woman who probably needs no introduction. Greta Brinkman. Hello, Diane. Greta is here. Fabulous. Thank you. Uh, My guest is Greta Brinkman, and you have this musical resume that is just astounding and uh, you're here so i would like you to to talk about that and uh you know i just want to first of all before we even do anything can i just wish you a happy birthday diane ferris thank you what's it like to be 29 (laughs) (laughs) well i'll tell you because i mean so far it's pretty good i know that you're having yours next year (laughs) <laughs> and I'm paving the way all, for all my friends that will be turning 29. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I hope you're having a great birthday. If, that, if it was my birthday, I'd like to be on the radio, I guess. There you go. Yes, you're my special guest, and, and, and how fitting. I'm and, very honored to be here. Oh, well, thank you. I'm honored to have you. You know what? what is weird? Even though I'm a DJ regularly on WRIR here in Richmond, Virginia, I'm actually being really nervous to be actually interviewed to be the focus of, the, of your of your guest thing, so please bear with me. Oh, well, okay. So, so, so how does one become such a badass? <laughs> we'll Eric start Keller, with, yeah, the School of Badassery, founded by Greta Brinkman. Man, you know, I can't even answer any kind of question that sounds even remotely self-aggrandizing, but, um, you know, as far as my whole career and life in general, it's been kind of a interesting trip. I was born overseas, and then we didn't come to this country until I was seven. Oh wow! Um, so by the time we got here, you know, I didn't, I hadn't had TV, and I talked with a weird, like Trinidadian Jamaican-sounding accent 
and I was just really smarter than the other kids, or I further along in school than the other kids of my age. And so my whole experience of America has been kind of, of being an outsider. You know, I was super unpopular all through grade school and junior high. You know, and it's awful, of course, to feel like such an outsider, but it really causes you to call upon a core of strength or develop your own sort of, you know, identity. And when you finally get old enough, I guess it just sort of, you just realize that it really doesn't matter what other people think and how judgmental they are, that you should just sort of do what you want and follow your own beliefs. And I know how corny this sounds. Um, I'm just trying to... Oh, it doesn't sound corny at all. I want to reach out to every other kid who was bullied in high school, you know, and say... And I got some really great advice. I don't remember from who, but years ago they said, listen, take whatever is weird about yourself and turn it up to 11. Mm. And that way you're going to automatically drive away everybody that you wouldn't want to associate with anyway. And the people that are into what you're into are going to be magnetically attracted to you. And I thought that was really cool advice, and I've, I've tried to live by it. And now that I'm older and I've gone through cancer and stuff like that, I, I believe that even more so, mm. that really life is an adventure not about how to conform, but hopefully how to just sort of find your own true nature and be true to that. And I guess my musical journey has been a similar kind of thing to that, too. I've just sort of, although, you know, if I had it to do over again, I wish I would have had a game plan or some, any sort of roadmap because I was really flailing, and I still am, and, you know, for many years I didn't know what to do next or have any kind of career plan. Everything that has happened to me, strangely, has just sort of happened randomly without my planning it. i got to say, I've just been in the right place at the right time so many times. I guess I, I've just been really lucky. Okay, look, I guess we can start at the beginning. All uh, right. My first ever band, I moved out of the house when I was 16 and moved into a rooming house um, in the town of Pennsylvania where I was living. Someone had left a bass guitar behind in the room where I moved into, and uh-huh. I didn't know how to play bass, and, you know, I didn't really know anything about anything because I was 16. But I did meet some other kids who also didn't know how to play their instruments, and we all got in the band together. They had some very cool parents who let us practice in the basement, and so um, I joined my first band, which, called, which was called Wasted Talent. And that was, gosh, like 100 years ago. And, and the Wasted Talent, um, that, that came out. Correct. You? We did, in fact, self, we released a, a cassette album, which was the height of That was the thing the to time. do, absolutely. <laughs> uh-huh. And, if, you know, like all good little punk rock anarchists, our, our record was called, waste, uh, our record was called uh, Self-Rule. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted to be, you know, determining our self-determining, and um, and I have queued up a song for you to hear called um, "Ready to Riot," which was so typical of every punk rock thing at the time. But you know, it was new to us. We were excited about it. Well, when you say uh, you know typical of punk rock at the time, but that was a new time. Yes, to us it was. It was every person who is, you know, between 16 and 20, I think, experiences a kind of, you know, flash of, they don't want to necessarily conform to the rules, and they want to have self-determination. They're frustrated by the rules and regs. And so, you know, that was our experience, too. And, and it sounds like a lot of your life experience contributed to you being sort of in the DIY and punk scene. What was going on for you musically, aside from finding a bass? What kind of things were you listening to earlier? Well, when I moved into this rooming house that I mentioned, actually, before that, um, I knew that there had to be an alternative to to corporate radio. Um, 
And so I was kind of I kind of raised myself on Blue Oyster Cult and Deep Purple, um, Led Zeppelin, of course. To me, still three of the most of the gold standard bands in terms of musicianship and arranging. And I, you know, I can I can listen to the Deep Purple record, Machine Head. I've probably heard it 600 times. I would listen to it again right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it, and then, so you know, I was kind of raised on 70s rock. And then when punk rock came along. I was aware of hardcore and stuff, but I wasn't really that into it. But when I moved into this rooming house that I moved into, some other kids were living there also, and they were listening to Ultravox and The Stranglers and Susie and the Banshees and stuff like that. And I, that just totally blew my doors off. For some reason, I just kind of magnetically drawn to songs with keyboards in them. So Ultravox and The Stranglers were right up my alley. Mm-hmm. I still feel that way. And it's Deep Purple, too, of course. I was going to say, yeah, Deep Purple. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. you know, I listened to Ultravox, the, temp, the Stranglers Black and White album. I listened to that every day and every night for probably a year. And uh, I think when I met you, Diane, you, you had were, that came car. down to Richmond with somebody. Yeah. I and came. I had a 1971 Plymouth Duster, and on the one door I had the Stranglers Black and White album cover. I couldn't believe that. That's how I met Greta. <laughs> I was like, who is this person I have to talk to? Like. <laughs> Because I think that you were driving, I was with my uh, my boss, I was in the tattoo business at the time, and we came down for a tattoo convention to Richmond. Ah, that's what that was, that's yes. right. Yes, it was. And, uh, and I'd never, and I've still never seen a car adorned in that kind of way with that, <laughs> especially something that was just not, not the thing to do. You know, a bumper sticker or something that's a, you know, but this, how did you actually do that? Did you paint it? I Xeroxed the cover, and then I blew it up really, really big, and then I cut out, you know, the parts and, and stuck them individually onto the door. Oh. It wasn't very high-tech at all. Yeah, it was, just of course, in the days before Photoshop. Long before that. That was one of my, like, oh, my God moments. Especially you're going somewhere far away. Not far away, but somewhere where you've never been before. And this car pulls up, and I see Jet Black just standing there. You know, it's that, that black-and-white album cover with where Hugh Cornwell's got his head tilted so he looks headless in it I, yes. you know it's just that's and that's my favorite strangler's record Woo-hoo. so iconic I, and every song on there is a great one too yeah yeah absolutely and, and you know y- years ago um when i was working front of house at maxwell's in hoboken uh a band came in i can't remember who it was uh, bat for lashes came in and i used to always tune the sound system to black and white and because oh. I just knew every single nuance in that record, and I could hear what was going on. And their road manager used to road manage the Stranglers. Oh, no way. And he, yeah, we, we, had, some, we had some time later. <laughs> it was like, he's like, oh, I know them. I used to road manage them. I said, we'll have to talk. Oh, man, honestly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yes. So were you 16 um, when this Wasted Talent uh, recording came out? I think I might have been 18 by then. Oh, okay. Or, no, I was 17. Or wait. So I was mumble years old, and it was the year mumble mumble. I was 19. <laughs> okay. When it finally came out. We, we spent a couple of years learning how to play. And, um, and is this the song, or is this the band that was on the, the master tape? Yes. Okay. Thank you for remembering. I don't know how it happened, but no, I do know. One of my teachers in the high school that I went to was from Indiana. So after school was all done, I went out to visit and see what was new, because I like to go to new places. And while I was there, I went to the thrift store, and at the thrift store, I saw somebody else with cool sneakers on, Converse, and it was Paul Mayhern. 
Oh, so wow. Immediately we got to be friends because it's like, oh, the guy has the cool shoes and he's got the good haircut. I know that he is somebody I want to talk to. Mm-hmm. So Paul and I got to be friendly, and he was, of course, in the Zero Boys. Yeah. And he was going to put out the Master Tape Volume 2, and he asked, did, did Waste of Talent want to be on it? So, of course, we said yes. And of course. Very, very pleased to have been part of that as well. Yeah, that that whole series of records were um, were really great, just mostly focusing on, like, the Midwest hardcore. I'll tell you what, at the time, regional differences were really noticeable. MTV didn't exist, and the Internet didn't exist. So a band from, like, the Milwaukee, Chicago, Indiana area really had a different sound to a band from the San Diego area or the band, or a band from the, the Richmond area. Oh, yeah, very true. And the bands in that area really sort of picked up things from each other, so it really mm-hmm. became like a regional, a regional sound. Yeah. How long did you stay in that band, and, and did you still stay in the same area? Waste um, of Talent probably lasted, I don't know, a couple of years before somebody went off to college, or I don't remember exactly what happened. Um, we kind of disbanded, and then, you know what's weird? I have, I've never even hardly... I've barely even ever smoked pot in my life, but I have the worst memory. I cannot <laughs> remember how Wasted Talent ended and how 2000 Maniacs started, mm. which was my next band. And that was still the same, uh, the same region? It was area? still the same, yeah, it was still okay. State College, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, and it was, which was a college town, a very small, really a cow town, and extremely intolerant and just full of jocks and business majors mostly. So there were only like 30 of us little punky waivers in town. Um, and we all, well, which was, you know, kind of good because we were forced to be nice to each other and we were forced to make our own fun, which paid off in later years. Because we, you know, again, the DIY ethic was a necessity. It wasn't like something that you chose to do because it was cool. It was because there really was nothing going on unless you were going to make it go on. That's interesting when you really are faced with that, like what you will do or you leave, or you don't have fun, or, or you don't have a place to play, or you don't right. have a fan scene. Or. Yeah. I will give props to a girl named Laura Norton who moved there to go to school, and she had some balls. She, walked, she went right up to the university committee department, or whatever it's called, and she started an organization called the um, Modern Rock Appreciation Society, and because it had then was able to have sort of an official stamp of approval from the college, she was able to take advantage of school um, resources such as spaces and money to pay bands with. Wow. And thanks to her, a lot of cool bands were able to come through town. So props to her. In fact, Crucifix and Fang came through, and Wasted Talent actually opened for Minor Threat mm. and about seven other bands, and that was, of course, really exciting. Yeah. I remember Skeeter from um, Scream was there, and he was like the only black man any of us had ever seen practically. Right. You know, because it was a very white town, and he was like eight feet tall, and he had this screaming blue mohawk, and it was just, whoa, what is going on? This is crazy. <laughs> That's the ex- accentuating, uh, uh, turning up to 11. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was just so transformative. Well, and I know that I had heard of um, being in <clears throat> New Jersey. I know I had heard of something happening in State College. I don't know what it was, but I know that it was on band's radar. You know, when when bands would play in New York or New Jersey, oh, where are you going next? And quite often they were stopping there. Oh, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, so, and that was, you know, that was back in the day. I, <clears throat> it didn't ever get me to venture out, but. Well, I, no, it was like a six hour, if I remember right, it was about yeah. a five or six hour trip yeah. from there to New York yeah. in New Jersey. Well, very good. Well, let's play some Waste of Talent and also some Tank off of Black and White and also maybe that Ultravox song, Young Savage. 
Awesome. My guest is Greta Brinkman, and she's going to be DJing for the peer pressure segment of this program. And her first song is Wasted Talent. It's called Ready to Riot. And uh, and this is and so this is your first uh, my very first band's very first album yes and I also put this song into Audacity and leaked out the FCC swearies just just for you thank you <laughs> look at all the work you did awesome all right so we'll be back with Greta in a minute this is some wasted talent stay tuned. <laughs>
Fred, are you there? I sure am. All right, good. So Young Savage from Ultravox, preceded by uh, Tank from The Stranglers, fabulous black and white record. Yeah, boy, that record was so good. Mm, yeah. I was very thrilled. You know, I was really so excited to be able to see The Stranglers and Ultravox both when I was younger. We, we took the bus to New York City and saw the, uh, Irving Plaza or whatever it was called at the time. Um, it was Irving Club Plaza. 57? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was Club 57 Irving Plaza, yeah. Okay, so yeah. it was actually at what is now Irving Plaza? Mm-hmm, yep. I thought so. Yeah, which was the Fillmore for a little while, and then it went back, and it, you know, uh-huh. that whole sort of corporate sponsorship I'm thing. I'm glad you remember that. That's right. always been a great venue. Mm-hmm. When was the first time that you were in New York? It had to be, I think me and a couple of Funky Waver friends got together and went to see Ultravox. It was when the Vienna record had just come out, so they were touring that in 83. Okay. But you know what else was great that I got to do as a kid? Um, when I moved out of home and my very first job was working in a restaurant, which, of course, after 13 years of that, I'll shoot myself in the head before I ever work in a restaurant again. But <laughs> at the time, I worked double shifts all summer long, and by the end of the summer, I had $1,000 saved up. And so I thought, what am I going to do with this money? And so I went to England for the first time ever for two whole weeks. Wow. I went to London, yeah. And I didn't get to see Ultravox and Stranglers on their home turf, but I did get to see the Dams and the Lurkers and XTC. And I was so sure that I saw the Gang of Four open for the B-52s, but then you had Hugo on the other day, and he said, no, they never played with them. So, hmm. again, well, I'm not sure were, about that. Maybe there were gigs near each other or, you know. Or something, yeah. They were near but each boy, other in your and heart and in your brain in yeah. some way. So Mind-blowing. I, I went over there and... Um, I should have planned better. Now that I'm older, I do stuff that grown-ups do, like planning ahead. But at the time, I just kind of showed up in London and went to, like, the little tourist info booth, and I said, you know, where's a cheap place that I could stay? Luckily, it was November, so there wasn't really too many tourists around because it was very dismal and gray. So I got a little hostel thing with some, shared a room with some Polish girls for a couple of weeks. Mm. And it was so much fun. I just went, every day I would get up and, you know, pick a new neighborhood to go to on in London and just go walk around and eat bread and cheese and go see bands. Wow. A pretty exciting thing. I was 17 at the time. That is so exciting. Yeah, it really was. People... It was so... It also was... You know, kids, if you're listening, do this. If you ever can... If you ever can travel, it's never a waste. No matter if you, like, travel to a mall in Bloomington, it is not a waste to leave your hometown and see what else is out there. Hmm. Seriously. Very good advice. Yeah, I'm definitely an avid travel fan. I mean, you just, you, you have to be open and you have to not expect anything. And uh, and then you see what you see. Right. That's, yeah, that's that's yeah. amazing. That's so, so exciting. And that just shows your spirit, just going out there and doing it. Um, on your timeline, after uh, Wasted Talent, what were you doing personally playing bass? took a little stab at going to college, but that didn't work out very well, so I had to drop out, um, which was just as well, because right after I dropped out, everything turned to computers, so everything that I learned became obsolete anyway. Mm, there was um, that period of time, yeah, where, where yeah. if you didn't get the computer thing, then... I would have wasted even more money. As it was, the student loan Nazis hounded me for the next two decades, until I finally got the Moby gig, and then when I got the Moby gig, I was like, Moby, can I please have an advance? I just want to pay off these jerks and yeah. I would never to bother me again, so that worked out well. Nice. Um, but anyway, back in the day, I was in the second band called 2000 Maniacs, which was a, another hardcore band. Um, and the big thing about that band was that we would play out of town sometimes, 
And we played in Pittsburgh one time at the Electric Banana, very infamous club very. on the edge of a cliff with a mirrored disco ball in the ceiling. Um, it was owned by this creepy couple named Johnny and Judy Banana. <laughs> and they were known for, if you had a decent night, at the end of the night they wouldn't pay you. Oh. And then uh, Johnny would take out his gun and shoot a hole in the ceiling and make you, you know, to scare you into leaving. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's entertaining. <laughs> I, again, I don't really remember specifically what happened with Wasted De- or with 2080X there, but I did. We did play with White Cross, mm. who were from Richmond, and Dewey and I got along so well, two bass players together, that we started dating. Um, and he quit White Cross and moved up to State College, where I was. But we've pretty soon realized that State College really wasn't happening. You know, we couldn't get a band together. We couldn't find a permanent drummer. Um, well, so we two bass players. To, we, yeah. <laughs> 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 we switched over to guitar, which is actually pretty good at. Um, so eventually, we took the guitar player from 2000 Maniacs and moved down to Richmond, where he was from. And that's how I came to be in Richmond, and that's how we started Unseen Force. Mm-hmm. Um, which really kind of was the beginning of my adulthood in terms of... Um, I guess feeling more like a, you know, serious musician and all that stuff. And we put out, Unsafe Force put out a real record on vinyl, and I worked in nightclubs and stuff like that. Um, And that was in, like, 1985, 86. And Unseen Force, after we put out a record, which was very good, actually, um, this record came out in kind of the dawn of metalcore. It was... You know, you remember probably, Diane, there used to yes. be a hardcore world, and then there was the metal scene. Oh, yes. And the two really did not mix. No, and then when they did, it was it was bloody. Exactly. For a little while, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But we were kind of happened to be there at the time when people started tentatively moving towards incorporating some metal into the hardcore, like with COC, Decroits, and um, bands like that. Um, mm-hmm. I remember the Obsessed from D.C. being oh, yeah. a pretty big uh, impression on people. Oh, and Unseen Force was mostly hardcore, but we did have some little metal metal leanings, and so we did a tour um, and made it all the way out to California, where we met Tim Yohannan, and that um, actually Tim and I got along and were friendly, and I used to write a little column for M- MRR, and I actually went out and lived in San Francisco for a few months, but I had to come back. But anyway, um, anyway, Unseen Force was on tour, and I have a couple of funny anecdotes from that tour. One is that we played with the Melvins. Um, actually, the Melvins opened for us. And wow. you know what the Melvins are like. They're yes. so just beyond anything that anybody has ever seen or done, especially at the time. They were so punishing and so not what I was used to at all that I totally hated them. I couldn't even stay in the room while they were playing. <laughs> mm. Well, do you know what, I mean, when you say not what you were used to, was that really, because, I mean, you're not a run-of-the-mill person. You're pretty tolerant and open, so... Do you remember what it was that was really getting your goat, so to speak? I guess I just thought they were too metal, maybe, or I don't even know what. Mm. Except that, you know, everybody in their early 20s is super black and white about everything, almost. That's and true. I was no exception. Mm-hmm. I mean, we played with the fluid, and I was judgmental towards them because they wore leather pants. I mean, that's how, <laughs> that's how black and white I saw things at the time, right. which was really silly, and I totally apologize to everyone. <laughs> You that. hear that fluid? She said she's sorry. <laughs> those looks, those looks of disdain she gave you, gone. Poof. They're yes, in the past. Exactly. I hope they could forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's how I was, you know, about the about the Melvins too. And now, of course, I just think they're the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, 
stalked them for. Th- I went to, when the Melvins and Isis did their tour. Um, oh yeah. Years ago, I went and saw three three days in a row of both bands. That was amazing. Did they notice? Like, yeah, I, had, I was on the Isis's guest list, and um, it's like, you're here again. <laughs> you're here again. Do you have a home? You know what? To be perfectly honest, just between you and me, Diane, don't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. But after three solid days of the Melvins, I was actually kind of Melvined out. Oh. It can happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, could, I could see that. Yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, but back... Oh, yes, I was going to tell another funny anecdote about the Unseen Force tour. Please do. A very pivotal moment was that we played um, in this wonderful, wonderful little venue in Lawrence, Kansas, called The Outhouse. Uh, I've heard so many stories about that place. Oh, it was legendary. People, it was yeah. out in the middle of a cornfield. There was mm-hmm. no neighbors to complain. And it was a total case of kids making their own fun the scene just building their own scene and everybody that came through there would play there and it was really fun again so that's when we played with the fluid and a couple of other local bands who were also really good and who should happen to be at that show but chris stein from blondie wow and how he happened to be at that show was that william s burroughs also used to live in lawrence at the time and um i don't know what he did with his time i guess shoot heroin and shoot shotguns into cornfields or something but Chris was out there visiting him and I guess Chris decided to go out and see what the kids were up to that night so he happened to come to our show Mm. Um, and he took a bunch of pictures Chris is actually a very talented photographer um, so he took a bunch of pictures and we got to be friendly and so I would you know a couple years went by and Chris and I would talk on the phone write letters back and forth a little bit and one day we were talking on the phone and uh, he mentioned this was night now we can fast forward eight years later Mm-hmm. To, um, 1994. So I'm on the phone with Chris, and he says, "Oh yeah, the Debbie Harry band. Uh, you know, Blondie had broken up, and Debbie had a solo career." And so Chris was like, "Yeah, Bl- the Debbie Harry band. We're going to um, we're going to go on tour in England in a couple of weeks, or for a couple of weeks. But I don't know who the bass player is going to be." And so I was like, "Oh, ha ha. Well, you know, I could be there in a couple of days." And totally joking. Mm-hmm. And Chris was like, oh, I never thought of that. When could you be here? And that is how I became Debbie Harry's bass player and moved wow. to New York City. And you said, I never actually thought of that either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, my whole life has just been this bizarre series of random occurrences and coincidences where one thing, looking in hindsight, it looks like one thing led neatly to the next thing. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, so far from that so you know it's, it's, it's not at all I never had any kind of plan or any roadmap or anything like that well but that's um, but in a way that that is exactly how one thing leads to another because you don't have anything that's true you know scheduled out and you're just sort of going okay what's next that's true actually yeah I just hmm. take whatever falls in my lap pretty much yeah wow. everything. so how long did that tour last and well, how was that experience really, playing with Debbie Harry? Yeah, I didn't. I, I was honestly, Diane. I was so overwhelmed, and I had no idea. Like, you know, there's a the music business kind of is all the same, and all musicians are kind of the same type of person. But there are levels to the music business. The DIY punk rock level is one level, and then there really is kind of a mid level sort of level where you get to have managers and other people carry your gear for you and stuff like that where you don't have to do everything DIY. Mm-hmm. So I was now moved up to this other level, um, which was just so overwhelming, and everything was just this big miasma of 
chaos and not understanding anything that was going on, unfortunately, because I would have paid, would have taken better notes. But long and short of it is, I moved up to New York, um, stayed in Chris's basement for some time, and we did a two-week tour of England, um, and then we came back and did about two weeks in the States. But um, the Debbie Harry band actually wasn't super busy, because um, Debbie herself is, of course, very talented, and she's always really busy. She was going off to make movies. I think she went upstate to be in the movie with Liv Tyler, um, and I think it was called Heavy. Hmm. I don't know um, it. Yeah, she, or she was always flying off to Rome to do a fashion show or something. She's just such a phenomenal, phenomenally talented lady. Oh. Unbelievable. And she has no ego whatsoever. And it's, and you know, it's like such a cliche. Sometimes I'll run across a diva, and I'm so tempted to say, listen, I've worked with Debbie Harry, and you're no Debbie Harry. <laughs> <laughs> but truly, she's just so incredibly talented and really kind. And she was so nice that she even let me stay at her house um, for several months um, while she was off doing stuff because I didn't have I really again I had no game plan when I came to New York City but once I was there and in the Debbie Harry band I thought this would be a good opportunity to stay you know and try to actually maybe be a real professional musician because mm-hmm. over the years I had been playing I was always in a band but I always had a real job you know I never really thought of being a, a musician as a career right so um, that was the first time it actually dawned on me. You know, maybe a person could make a living at this. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, of course, I was woefully unprepared. And if I was going to do it again with a roadmap, I would a learn to play stand-up bass, really? b learn learn to sing backing vocals from the beginning, and c learn to read music a lot sooner. Because there was a lot of gigs that I didn't get because of these things that I, you know, this level of professionalism I wasn't able to achieve. And what, um, I guess I'm surprised to hear you say, um, to learn stand-up bass. Have there been that many opportunities? There would have been. It would have been, you know, I could have increased my opportunities by probably 25%. Wow. Or something like that. I mean, I, I can't really quantify it because, sure. again, I didn't get the gigs. Mm-hmm. But it just would have been another asset, another good kind of tool to have in your tool belt. Right, right. Um, yeah, if you're, if you're going to be a professional bass player. Yeah. And... and are there other, do you play like the the stick or any of the other things that are sort of bass related? I don't. I barely even play five string. In fact, the band that I'm in now, I play a five string bass, but I take off the top string because I really feel like if it's a bass line and you can't play it on four strings, it doesn't need to be played on a bass. You need to move to guitar. Ah. <laughs> Maybe that's, again, very black and white of me, but that is really what I think. Well, but that's very bass player of you also. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. Do you... Did you play left or right-handed? Because I think I read something that somebody m- pointed out that you played in a in an unconventional way. You are correct. Actually, going back to when I moved out of my, the house and into this rooming house that someone left the bass behind, um, I didn't know any better than to think that, well, this first bass that I found that someone had left behind in my room was so, the action was so high that I seriously could not finger it with my left hand, which is the hand you're supposed to have on the neck of the guitar, mm. the fretboard. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't squeeze the strings hard enough. Oh, wow. So I thought, well, I'll just turn it around and play, you know, I'll squeeze the strings with my dominant hand, which is my right hand, and play with my left hand. What's the difference, you know? That string should be on the bottom anyway. Right. Right? <laughs> um, turns out that that's not entirely correct, because there's a bunch of stuff I can't do, like play chords, or, God forbid, I can't slap and pop, but who wants to do that anyway? <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's how that happened. I'm actually mostly right-handed, but I do the bass left-handed upside down. Hmm. Simply because I didn't know any better. Hmm. 
But no. it's really handy if I ever need to borrow a bass, you know, I'll just take another, a right-handed person's bass, flip it around, and bish bash bosh. Right. You know, that's funny that just a, a little, a, uh, a signature quirk that you yeah. had no idea <laughs> that it was turning into. Um, and, and then you mentioned, um, like, when you when you started playing the Debbie Harry Band, that that was kind of like another level. And and you've obviously been very successful as a uh, as a professional musician. What do you see in the system or the world of playing music for a living that's really lacking um, in terms of I don't you know I don't know what it would be, but just the way the whole filter down like oh you play music for a living, but you'll never get this or this isn't taken care of or nobody cares about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well. Um Actually, to tell the truth, nowadays, in today's climate, and I'm not just being a cranky oldster when I say this, but the industry has changed to such a degree that you really, um, it's pretty much impossible to even make a living as a musician now, mm. no matter how many good attributes you have, or how well you sing backups, or how many, you know, how well you can read music. It's just that things have changed to the point where everybody, um, A, there's fewer venues to play at, so people feel less need for live bands and be a singer-songwriter who wants to have their material, you know, be known, they're much more likely to just do everything on Pro Tools. Right. So everybody kind of feels like they don't need a band, um, which, is un- which is unfortunate for us. What about the people that right? want bands? What, forget about needing a band. What about wanting a band, wanting to be in a band? Well, you know, it's a lot of work to start from nothing, to start from scratch. And a lot of club owners have realized that it's way cheaper to pay one DJ than it is to pay a five-member band. Mm. So, you know, aside from house parties and stuff, which do still happen, thank goodness, um, it's real difficult to make a living as a touring band, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then the structure of uh, digital music has changed things where it seems like now music is the thing that you give away. Correct. And you want people to show up to the shows to pay to get in and to buy your merchandise. And it used to be the merchandise was secondary. Exactly. You're so exactly right. It's true. Nobody pays for the actual music now. But you, if you're lucky, you can get them to come to your shows and buy a T-shirt because a T-shirt is harder to download from the Internet. Right. The guest that I had on last week said that there is there is the research, and, and he was talking about he, Jeff Wagner, who's an author in the metal world of metal. He was primarily talking about the world of metal being supportive of you know, vinyl releases and that kind of thing, which otherwise have almost entirely disappeared. And what's interesting is that because the heavy music world still looks at and still consumes vinyl, that now all these heavy bands like Amon Amarth is on the Billboard 200 because people aren't buying that much music. And I, I think that Billboard's going to have to change their standards. And whatever I had not ways. even thought about that. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't huh? either. You know, uh-huh. so you see whatever Pink and Amon Amarth, right next to each other. Wow, that's so interesting. I didn't even that didn't even dawn on me. But you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jeff's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you know, I mean, in terms of the changes, do you see yourself? I mean, I obviously you're a musician, um, and and I know that you're in the band Drug Lord now, and we will definitely talk about that. What do you see for the, for the future of yourself and music? Um, in general, I, find, I kind of feel like, well, I spent a lot of time working hard at being a professional musician, and when things changed, I had to wake up and smell the coffee. 
Now, for me personally, my um, best plan of action is to not even think about making a living at music anymore, because all it does is just lead to heartache mm. and stress. And it, eventually, if you're working too hard at, make, at playing music, it becomes a job, and you really do begin to resent it. Mm. And like it, any other job. Like any other job. As, well, at least for me, because I'm not a singer-songwriter, I don't have this bubbling well of creativity of songs dying to get out of me or anything. I'm just, I'm a bass player. I'm a, I'm a bass player. I'm a craft person. It's my job mm-hmm. to make the structure of the song. The foundation of the song needs to be solid. Mm-hmm. The singer or whoever is doing stuff up front needs to not ever have to look around behind them and go, what the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> you know, and so I'm, a cra- I'm more, I see myself more of a craft, as more of a craft person. Nobody really notices the bass player unless the bass player messes up. Right. <laughs> Absolutely true. And that's, and that's what everybody's like, what the... You did touch on clubs, not uh, clubs hiring DJs and stuff. What is going on in the Richmond scene? Because I know you do, you do a radio show there. I do do a radio show. We have actually a very vibrant local scene, which is mostly underground. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of metal here. Um, the kids doing it for themselves, playing at house shows. And we have actually some really good local bands like Cough, Inter Arma. Um, I know I'm forgetting somebody all right now, Windhand. Oh yeah. You actually go on tour and make themselves visible, you know, in other parts of the, in other parts of the country mm-hmm. and the world. Um, Richmond's kind of a hotbed. It's always been kind. Of, it goes in cycles, though. In the mid '80s, we were a hotbed of hardcore bands, and everybody and everything was very exciting. And then heroin came through town and basically wiped out the entire scene for several years. Wow. And then it kind of then we had the early '90s like post-punk hardcore thing with the happy kids singing choruses and stuff, and then that kind of like a um, struck anywhere in bands like that. We had quite a few of those. And then they kind of, I don't know, they all grew up and went to school or whatever. And now at the moment, we have a whole bunch of metal going on. Mm. So there's always something happening here. And you are the uh, the supporter. And the I try, yes. I really go out as much as I possibly can, even though sometimes these shows are way past my bedtime. <laughs> 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 but I really enjoy, I have a, my show on WRIR as a local-only show, and so I, I really enjoy having live bands come and play on the show, and I like to showcase what the, what the kids are up to, because not everybody's, you know, begging on the Internet for this. Not everybody, I'm not trying to sound egotistical, oh, not everybody's as plugged into the local scene as I am, I'm the queen of everything that's happening. But I do, co- I do try to keep in touch with what the kids are up to and, you know, let other people know. Oh, yeah, you definitely do. And I remember you had a, I don't even know if you still look at that MySpace thing, but you were doing a MySpace Richmond, was it was it a Richmond show announcements? Yeah, and I would go to shows and blog about them. Mm-hmm. You know, but I can't kind of, I kind of can't do that anymore now that I know everybody so much better. It feels <laughs> weird to write about your friends that you're actually <laughs> friends with. It's like, oh, Bob had an off night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. <laughs> I would like to um, get back to the music. Can we play some Unseen Force? Yeah. This would be my band from 1985, which actually went on tour. And one of our high points of our entire career was playing with Dekortsen a few times. I'd like to play Dekortsen song if we could. Yes. Uh, That would be absolutely fine with me. So we are going to play We the People. Is that the name of the record also? No, the name of the record is um, In Search of the Truth. Ah. Okay. My guest is Greta Brinkman. And, uh, oh, Greta, is there a, a website or um, the, the best place to look for you and, and what's going on for you um, on the Internet that we can tell the listeners? 
Uh, no, I hate to say it, but really the best place to find me is on Facebook. I know okay. everybody likes to complain about Facebook, and it is terrible and it sucks, but that's the best place to find yeah, me. Yeah, it's the only game in town sometimes. So you can find Greta on on Facebook. All right, and now we're going to hear some uh, previous Greta. What year is this Unseen Force from? This would have been 1986. Okay. And we will also hear some decorts and from about that same time. Excellent. That's always good with me. So my guest is Greta Brinkman, and uh, we're going to hear some Unseen Force next. Please stay tuned. Uh, we are WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WFMU.org. I got a terrible job, but you know politicians. These finances are secure, and I'm prepared for war. Who's the one to make the laws that govern our lives from the club? We don't support the f***ing policies. We don't want either side. There's a threat. There's a threat. And the two of us are back. Greta? Yes, I am here. Hello, 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 hello. hello. And uh, so that was Unseen Force with We the People and Detroit sent off of their October file record. It's been so long. Um, and Detroit, by the way, are finally starting to get some of the recognition they have deserved for so long. You know, I saw that for a little bit many, many years ago. 
And then it just sort of, I think it was at the time when they were really imploding and, and I saw a lot of uh, big label people coming to see them and bands really taking in- interest in them. And then it's just sort of didn't happen and it seemed like things turned around and uh, now they are. And yeah. uh, I got to see Eric for the first time, the, Eric the, the drummer, for the first time in years and years and years in April at Roadburn. Oh, you went to that. Good I for you. I did. I did. And so Danny came out and uh, he sang Man in the Trees with Voivod. And, oh, wow. Yeah. And they were actually supposed to play. They were going to try to get two drum kits up, but they didn't have a chance to um, to rehearse. And, and uh uh, Danny's band Decapitado played on this program uh, a few years ago, so I've seen Dan since the break of, of Detroit's, and I hadn't seen Eric at all. Uh-huh. And uh, they're just abs- my favorite hardcore band ever. You know, they're so great. Yeah, and and they are playing Roadburn this year coming up. I know. They I'm are. excited about that too. Yeah. yeah, it's in April. So yes. Yeah. So thank you for flying the flag of Detroit's. Man, I, they're just so great. I I also saw Eric recently. I was in uh, Amsterdam and stayed at his house and. He and his lovely wife are just doing fantastic. I'm so happy for them. I know. Yeah, he's got a he's got a great thing. He uh, he owns, I guess the I don't know if it's the full restaurant or if it's the service of, but the restaurant that's attached to the Milkveg. Right. It's called yeah. Eat at Joe's, and Joe being his wife. Oh, right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and they feed all the bands who come through the Milkveg. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Yeah. Super. Super. So we want to jump to a another. Uh, little segment of music, right? Yes, and a, yeah. another space and time for, for Greta in your uh, your history. So what I'd like to do, our next little mini set, I'd like to um, look at our at my time in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was there, I because I was friendly with Danita, she had stayed at my neighbor's house in Richmond years ago. L7 um, invited me to play on the Beauty Process record, which I was thrilled to do. So we'll hear a song from that called I Need. And then we will also hear... Um, Another thing that I did when I was living in New York was got to play in this fantastic bossa nova punk band called Supla Zoo Style with this wonderful man named Supla who just got off tour with Adam Hintz. And I'd like oh. to play I've Been Thinking from our record that we recorded. Mm-hmm. And I also had the opportunity and pleasure of working with Peter Oslin and Danny and a couple of other people on um, a project which was a PIL cover, which I don't know if I, did I email you that or not? I can't remember. What was the name of the project? The project was Scars, and the song is Seattle. Yes. So that'll be Danny singing on that, Danny from Detroit, and Tommy Price playing drums, Peter really? Austin on guitar, and yeah, um, Martin Atkins, who I'm also friendly with, invited me to be part of this PIL tribute that he was putting together. Mm-hmm. So that's what we got together and played that. And this was recorded in New York? That was recorded in New York at wow. the studio where Peter happened to work at the time. Mm-hmm. Peter, if you're listening, hello, and thank you again. <laughs> oh, and the other thing I'd like to play, the fourth song, is another thing between Peter and I. We did a remix of a Damage Manual song um, where I played bass and keyboards and singing, and Peter did everything else. And that song is um, is the Peep Show Ghost remix. Excellent. So if we could play those four songs in a row, that'll give me a chance to run to the bathroom, too. <laughs> Very good. Personal needs, definitely respected here, WFMU. And, you know, a listener wants to know, Greta, um, when is your radio show and uh, what time is it on WRIR? Thank you so much for asking. It is every third Saturday. It is called Locals Only with Greta B. And it is on from 3, sorry, from 5 until 7 p.m. every third Saturday of the month. 
Oh, good. And you get that much um, material? Where you Are you playing new stuff all the time? Unbelievably, yes. There's so many bands always doing something in Richmond. Mm, and you're always doing something in Richmond, so that's perfect. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So my guest is Greta Brinkman, Greta B., as uh, as, as we say on the radio, and uh, the next track we're going to hear is off of the Beauty, Beauty Process record from L7. This is I Need. Please stay tuned.
And we have returned Greta. Hello. Hi. Sorry, I totally cut you off. I was talking to Greta <laughs> offline, totally and the song ended, <clears throat> and I just totally pressed the button and put you, uh, like, on the air without saying, oh, hang on, we'll be, you know. I'm, I am so rude. <laughs> I apologize. That set the damage manual? That was the damage manual. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I got friendly with Martin, and I don't, again, don't remember how. But Martin invited me to do this remix of a Damage Manual song. I actually played one show with the Damage Manual, which was a real treat. Oh. Um, Chris Connell is a fantastic frontman, and it was a real honor to play with him and Martin. Mm. Um, but that song that we just did um, was a remix of a Damage Manual song, courtesy of Peter Oslin, who's a fantastic engineer and a good guitar player. He is. You know, and most of the time in my career, after I record something, I usually never listen to it again. But the stuff that I did with Peter, I will go back to again and again, because I'm really very proud of it. These last two songs that we heard were both courtesy of him. Oh, neat. And now, I do need to ask you a little bit more about um, the Supla Zeus. I mean... (laughs) Just the fact that the name <laughs> yes, of the song is The Mon- wacky song that we heard before these last two songs yes. was Monkey Copacabana Beach Banana. Yes. And that was by the bossa nova punk band that I was in in New York City called Supla Zeus Style. And Supla is a really uh, such a unique character, and I absolutely love him so, so much. He's a wonderful person. 
he currently is in a band with his brother, and they're called Brothers of Brazil. And they oh. just finished a tour with Adam Ant, which was really Got it. Okay, yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. I miss things here and there. Where would you say the best place to travel to in terms of, like, working and, and uh, if, you're, if you're touring? Some oh, yeah, you know what? I almost forgot to mention the biggest fame that I ever got was by playing for Moby for three and a half years. I wasn't going to not mention that. <laughs> yes. I, I completely slipped my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I was working in a club called Don Hills, mm-hmm. and I was, I was a house... Um, I was in the house band. We did a, a show every Friday called Squeeze Box, which we had a different drag queen singer every week. Mm-hmm. We would learn five to ten songs. And it was like rock and roll karaoke, but before people were really doing rock and roll karaoke. Oh, okay. So it was like a different drag queen singer, and great learning experience. It made me so good. But anyway, Moby saw me play there, and so when so I got the gig as his bass player when that play record of his came out. To no one's expectations that record all of a sudden took off all over the world so we ended up what was supposed to be a six-week tour ended up being three and a half years of going all the way around the globe twice wow which was again it was like i was so not prepared i had no idea what to expect and this was like the whole another level this was now i had gone from diy punk rock level to mid-level touring with debbie and stuff and now this was like real rock and roll level you had mac trucks full of equipment and lights and a whole separate bus for all of your crew because wow. I had to get there at, like, you know, 5 a.m. to start setting up the stuff. Yeah. And, you know, hotels and plane flights and having someone else take your passport for you and take care of everything for you, and it was a whole other thing. Wow. Um, and so I was such a... I wish, again, that I had been... If I had known then what I know now, I would have paid more attention. I would have not been quite so overwhelmed. Um, mm. Because it was really exhausting and just, like, just a chaos. And, I, you know, at times it was just too much for me. And i got to say, anybody who is as famous as Moby was at the time is not there because of some fluke or because somebody, you know, paid for them to blah, blah, blah. It's because they work their freaking asses off. For example, we would fly to Japan. It's like a 12-hour flight. You're so exhausted you cannot even move. And so everybody in the band is lying down in their hotel rooms. And meanwhile, Moby is down at the local radio station doing a radio show or he's at a local record store doing an in-store. It's incredible how... how how hard those people work. Yeah. The actual stars. It's no accident. No, it really is not. But, oh, yeah, your original question was, what is the best place to, to travel to? And I so I loved going to Japan. It's like a freakish comic book world. But I don't think I would want to live there because it's just so weird and you feel so much like a clumsy giant when you're a Westerner that is, who is there. Um, it was really fantastic to go there, though. And I also loved Australia. The people, it's like Australia and New Zealand is kind of like the States was maybe 40 years ago before everybody got cell phones and started suing each other every five minutes. <laughs> it's just like everything makes more sense. You take more personal responsibility. You don't expect the nanny state to bail you out and, you know, stuff like that. So that was, I really like Australia. And, of course, I really have a soft spot also for Berlin, Germany, where mm. I just spent a month this summer. Yes, you did. And, boy, what a, I just, and every day I lie awake thinking, how can I try to weasel my way? How can I make it work so I can go back and live in Berlin. It's an actual health care, it's an actual quality of life with people who care about school and things like that. Right. So, <laughs> not trying to sound un-American, but in fact I am. <laughs> <laughs> but when you travel that much and you do see how other countries take care of things, and you know, and even even the just taking care of musicians. You know. So true, yes. In yeah. Germany, for example, I did a couple of tours in Germany, a punk rock tour as well. 
Europeans in general really care about music in a way that Americans in general, if I'm going to make blanket statements, do not. And they have a lot of um, local governments often will subsidize a show warehouse slash art gallery slash skateboard ramp area um, in a way that is just a lot more civilized. Um, yeah. You know, and the people that are putting on the shows don't have to worry all the time that the cops are going to sh- show up and shut the place down. It's just they understand that kids need an outlet in which to be creative and create their own scene and feel like they're, you know, doing something. Mm-hmm. And so they let that happen in a in a not in an approved safe safer environment. It just makes a lot more to me. That's a mark of a civilized society. You yeah. know, when people. the law doesn't respect the people, the people aren't going to respect the law. Right. Yeah. It has. It does have to be the other way around. And then, I, yeah, my experience is that most uh, promoters in Europe is where most of my experience is. Most promoters actually do care about the band, and it's not, mm-hmm. they're not trying to screw anybody over, or, oh, well, you didn't sell enough tickets or whatever. It's like the band is well-fed. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to go see bands, you know, in smaller venues in New Jersey and New York, and the band told me that, you know, they didn't have enough money for dinner, and they're playing on an empty stomach. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, are you kidding? That's just not, you. how can you be your best? I know, it's just so wrong. So you said that you would, you want to go back to Berlin. If I could, I would mm-hmm. live there in a heartbeat, honestly. You know, maybe I'm just seeing everything all rosy-tinted, but I did spend a whole month there this summer, and I, would, I just loved every second of it. Mm. Hello, Suzanne, if you're still, if you're still listening. She huh. was my, Suzanne was one of my roommates in Richmond, who is German, and she eventually went back to Germany and got married and has a couple kids, and so they were going to go on uh, vacation for a whole month like civilized countries do, and they needed someone to watch their cat. So I there said, you I'll go. Come over and do it. You can do that. <laughs> Did you go to a lot of shows there in Berlin? I didn't go to a whole lot of stuff. Berlin, to me, is a little bit like a bigger version of Richmond, hmm. um, just a little bit more civilized in the fact that mass transit actually works. Bicycles actually have designated bicycle lanes, and everybody respects them. Organic food is cheaper than our regular GMO food is over here. Um, oh. And there's a whole lot of artist spaces, um, murals, Every, the art scene appears to be pretty free-ranging and fairly well-supported. Of course, you know, there's doom on the horizon, and developers are starting to move in and build condos, but this happens to any place that has a happening art scene, I guess. Right. And you're in uh, Drug Lord. What else is going on for you? Doing any playing with anybody else? or? I kind of had a... I was playing in White Cross. The, in a strange twist of fate, I ended up being a white cross bass player for a couple of years, um, which was really a lot of fun. Even though I don't really ever listen to hardcore, I will say this, another big secret of mine, even though I've played in hardcore bands for 100 years, and I enjoy playing hardcore live, but I never listen to hardcore records. Your, sacred is, your secret is safe with us. <laughs> Thanks. Listen, you guys, don't tell anybody, okay? Right. But I actually don't like hardcore that much. I find it very boring. <laughs> <laughs> but you cut your teeth on hardcore, though. Uh, it's true. It, it was a great way to come up, and I was glad to be part of that hardcore mid-'80s scene because it was really very exciting. And I did. I was really quite happy to play in White Cross, and we did put out a record, which I'm pretty happy with. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm ha- happy and proud of my time in that band. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, after playing hardcore for so many years, um, the discovery of doom metal was really interesting to me. Um, if anybody listening does not know, it's like if you take a Black Sabbath record and turn it down to like 16 speed. <sighs> everything is super slow, super low tuned, and just kind of muddy and foggy. 
Mm-hmm. And so to play this type of music as a musician after being raised on being fast, it's a whole other discipline, and it's really interesting. It actually takes the holding back part is really in its way as difficult as playing super fast. So I really, I really love doom metal, and I really enjoy my band Drug Lord, um, which I think is the greatest name ever, and I can't believe it no one has used it before. It is. When I saw that you had some, some tracks out there, I just thought that was exactly my thought. How come nobody's ever had a band called Drug Lord? Before? I know, right? It's so, it's a no-brainer. So, yeah, we have that. And Drug Lord, by the way, has a Facebook. We are on a label called Last Anthem, which is out of Virginia Beach. So if you want to look them up on the Internet, our label has just put out a 12-inch vinyl of different colored vinyls of our first record, and we're exceedingly proud of that as well. Mm, very nice. Yeah. And uh, what did you say the name of the label is again? The name, the name of the label is Last Anthem Records. Last Anthem. Okay. Is, the, is that uh, the label that the Winhan record is on? No, Winhan is on um, Force Field. Oh, okay. I think. Don't quote me on that. They might have moved to somebody else. Well, I wasn't watching. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you a, a total, like, out of the out of nowhere question. If you had a hundred thousand dollars to donate or give it away, what would you do with it? I would probably split it up between local charities. I I actually do give a lot of money to a local spay and neuter organization. I like to keep my giving local because then I know where the money actually goes and that it's actually being used for the proper stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd probably give a third of it to um, Prevent a Litter here in Richmond, Virginia, which does a, is a spay and neuter clinic. And then another third of it I would certainly give to maybe not, a probably Planned Parenthood or similar, sort of any kind of reproductive freedom group or movement, any, any way that I can help, I'd be happy to do that. Um, because I think that reproductive freedom is, it just should be, it shouldn't even be under discussion. It should right. just be a no-brainer. Yeah. Everyone yes. should have the right to self-determination, and that includes whether or not they're going to have babies. Right. And it's just, I, I can't even imagine arguing about that. Um, and then the other, I don't know what else I would do with the money. I would probably, I hate to say it, I'm a little burned out on Richmond City Hall right now, so I would, I was going to say I would try to open an all-ages art space, bicycle space, show space, but I really wouldn't want to deal with City Hall long enough mm. to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what I would do with the rest of it. But you, but that's what you think that Rich, that's what Richmond needs? Yes. Mm-hmm. Richmond does have, it's slowly inching towards a more enlightened viewpoint as far as allowing artists to be art artists and not drive them out of town with fact taxes and fines. And we're slowly getting on the stick as far as bicycle encouragement, but it's a very, very long process, and basically most of City Hall is going to have to die off for anything to really move forward. <laughs> well, so I'm frustrated with Richmond in several aspects, even though it's a really great place to live. Quality of life is fantastic, and, you know, I have a really good life here. And then when you were on tour with Moby, you said that was like three and a half years, and it was a surprise. Did you, like, lose a living space or anything like that in that because of that process? No, I was always able to... I'm the type of person who feels most secure if I have more than one apartment. So I always had a room here in Richmond, and then I always had my tiny little one-room thing in Brooklyn as well. And I was able to pay the rent on both of those places the whole time. Oh, great. So, yeah, I had a place to come back to, and I had I had the place in Brooklyn. Which I, I, then I finally, you know, when the Moby thing wound down, or I finally quit because I just couldn't take it anymore. And then I looked around and realized that, as a musician, I really couldn't make a living in New York City anymore. And besides which, New York just really isn't that fun. It's right. way more corporate than it ever has been. Be- 
in my experience. And I'm not just being a cranky old person complaining, oh, and kids these days, they don't know anything, and our <laughs> life is so much better. But New York City really isn't as dangerous and fun as it used to be, um, and it's really expensive. So I finally just decided to cut my losses and move back down to Richmond full-time um, because New York City, it took 14 years to realize, really is better to visit than it is to live in, at least for me. You know, the money that I, that I save living down here, I can go up to New York every two months and live it up right. like a queen yeah, instead of paying rent. A little hovel in New York. Mm-hmm. But I will say I have to really give shout-outs to some friends of mine who are buskers in New York City who actually make a living at it. Yeah. And it's because they work their freaking asses off. And I first saw them in the subway at New at the Union Station, at Union, sorry, Union Square, and they were doing this fantastic thing with some loops and some guitars and some singing, and we got to be friends. They're called Hef and Judd, mm-hmm. and um, I helped them a little bit edit their book, which came out, which is called Buskers, and it is a fantastic read. Oh, and that these I guys didn't know. Are just, they're just everything that I love about music. They are totally DIY. They absolutely do not give up, and they refuse to conform, and props to them. I love them to pieces. And so that's why I wanted to play one of their songs, too, just so everyone can know what that's about. So we can we can go to that. If, what if we go to that and then we come back and we and we play Drug Lord? Sure, that sounds good. We'll, uh, I have not heard this Hef and Judd song. I just trusted that it was going to be great, so this is a new one for me too. Oh, good. All right. My guest is Greta Brinkman, and we're going to hear something from Hef and Judd. And, and they're on HefandJud dot com. Oh, perfect. I think. I think so too, because I did. I lo- I looked for uh, for for a picture of them. Oh, good. And uh, that's what we're going to hear next. Stay tuned.
And we are back. Greta Brinkman at the helm of the uh, the wheels of steel, let we say. Are you here? <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> and um, and our time is winding down. I just I want to thank you for for being here. And and folks, I do talk about what an amount of work it is to put together a show. And Greta has completely outdone any guests that I did in terms of what she supplied me and absolutely perfect so thank you for doing all the legwork thank you for being a guest oh and it's my pleasure you've been a fantastic hostess oh. i was so nervous when i when we started i feel oh, much better now not to worry we don't make people nervous here <laughs> <laughs> but you know and for and for somebody who says that they've had no roadmap i find you to be very well directed and very grounded well there are no. certain you know consistencies that you want to stick with like be an honest person show up on time in tune and sober and you pretty much can't go wrong. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you've got you've got a little bit of a lot of bit of integrity there because I, yeah. I don't I don't think it's any accident that you've gotten to where you've gotten to also. Well, you know. thank you very much. And uh, and uh, living the gold standard, as we say, or at least you know. Well, you know, for me, I've done pretty well with what I had to work with, which was nothing. So I, I did okay. It was nothing at some point. Recognize your talent, girl. Oh, thanks. So um so yeah. And, by the way, you do have a fabulous memory. Well, I had to write a lot, a lot of the stuff down. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. You know, any plans for a book? You know, people keep telling me that, and I always, to me, my life does not seem, you know, as you live your own life day to day, it doesn't seem that thrilling. It just seems like, you know, this and that happened today, big deal. But right. I guess, you know, I could, I'm, I've been actually inspired by seeing my friends Heth and Jed write their book, which is called Buskers. It's available on Amazon. Um, how they were just able to weave their whole life into a series of little little vignettes, but also with a thread through it, which I guess is what pretty much anybody's life is. But mm-hmm. now that I see that it can be done on um, in some people that are similar to me in a lot of ways, I feel like maybe that wouldn't be such a bad idea. Plus, my I guess my take on it could be, you know, like I always get, always, you're the first person ever who has not asked me, so what's it like to be a woman in the music business? Why and my f- answer is always, it's no worse than being a woman in any other area of business. Right, which, and you only know one way of being, so right. you can't really say, well, when I was a man, I could say this. It, yeah, exactly. Nothing to compare it to. But uh, maybe that would be, a, you know, I could maybe have an interesting take on things from that perspective, I suppose. You could, and, you know, you could. My, my first thought is that you could probably ask Martin, and he would probably, he could probably, he's got that mind where he could that probably go, true. your angle would be this, and that would be a perfect book. You know what, Martin is a marketing genius, and I have every respect for him. And a lot of people like to complain about Martin, and they say, oh, you know, he's a sellout or whatever. Apparently, anybody who makes a living doing what they're doing is a sellout. So yeah. Martin's a sellout because he teaches now at, uh, at um, oh, what's the name of it? Heck, something like Media College of Wisconsin, Media Center maybe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's doing great for himself, and I'm really impressed that he was able to go from his career as a drummer to a writer to now a professor and it's really kind of inspiring well and that's a lot of work too he's reinventing himself over and over and over again really he's hustling you know Mm -hmm. i can do Mm -hmm. this okay i'll do that okay i'll do that and it seems exciting and and he's still in the music world in some way yeah i have every respect i have i've been so lucky the best part of this entire 
journey in my life has been meeting some of the most awesome people. <laughs> you've been name dropping some amazing names, and I don't mean name dropping in that kind of way, but just people <laughs> who people who you've name checked just this afternoon. It's you know. been a treat and a pleasure to work with each of these people, and especially as a you know to see how different people approach business and how they approach their songwriting and how they approach life in general. It's all just such a, a great uh, education. And so, please tell us about this next track that we're going to hear. Well, as we were discussing before, doom metal is the new thing that some of the kids are doing. Um, it's not that new anymore. In fact, I'm sure some new newer trend has come along since then, but uh, it's new to me, doom metal, and I'm with the band called uh, Drug Lord. And actually, it's the drummer from My Days in Unseen Force, if you think back to that Unseen Force hardcore track. Wow. Bobby, Bobby is now playing doom metal. And I think it's as interesting for him as it is for me because we both were raised on super fast, super hard stuff. So, so do you guys like? Do you start a song going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four? <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny? Back in the day in 1986, when we were on tour, I'd be looking at him, and we'd be playing, and he'd be speeding along, and I'd be like, "Slow down, <laughs> slow down!" And now I, <laughs> now I still do it, but for different reasons. Right. <laughs> And our singer, songwriter, Tommy Hamilton, is a supremely talented guy from Tallahassee, Florida. He used to be in a band called Gruel many years ago, um, and I've always been a fan of him and his stuff, and eventually he moved to Richmond, so we got in a band together, and I'm very pleased. I like Tommy's songwriting because if you would take these songs that are on our record and speed them up and tune them up to regular speed, they would be like really catchy pop songs. Oh, cool. But they're not. They're super slow and kind of you know, sludgy and gloomy and riffy, and I love that, too. I think it sounds great. I'm very pleased with our album, which we recorded at Etchington Studios here in Richmond Mm -hmm. with John Chambers at the helm. And again, as I said, it was put out by Phil McKeon from Last Anthem Records. Much to our surprise, we put out our EP, and so all of a sudden we're like, somebody wants to pay money to put our record out on vinyl? Let me think. Yes. Yeah. So he did that, and the records came back. They sound great. We're very thrilled. Excellent. And uh, you guys are playing a record release party November 4th at Strange Matter in Richmond. That is correct. Ta-da. And I hope that anybody that wants a record will, will come by because they'll be for sale there. Nice. Very good. Well, Greta, thank you. Thank and thank you, you thank Diane. You, thank Happy you. birthday. I oh, you had a good time. Thank you. I, you know, I was actually really glad that you chose this date. I was like, good. Because there's the familiarity thing, and I don't always know all of my guests. Right. And you some know. of them can be awkward and they don't yeah. want to ever talk. Or Greta and I haven't spoken to each other in decades. But yeah. because of the Facebook world, we've been in touch in those electronic ways. But, <laughs> uh, but this has been great. Your talent and, and what you sort of, you still really do go to bat for the kids. And I love that. You well, know. the kids are the future, man. Yeah, <laughs> they are. We can't be 29 forever. It's true. Or can we? Ooh. <laughs> That's the question. And with that, I will leave you. This is uh, MF Rising, the name of the song. Right, which is also the name of the album. And thank you again, Diana. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, this, so here's some drug lord, Greta. Thank you. And uh, please stay tuned. We're WFMU.
and that concludes another podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. More on the way. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and my Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze Farris, Rocker for Life and Making a Difference. The full link to my uh, index of shows and podcasts is can be found on wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. Those are, that's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations, and I've got years of interviews and podcasts. So if there's something that you'd like to see reposted that you missed, please get in touch. Send me email, diane at wfmu.org. And be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like it, please rate it and review it. Wow. WFMU. Peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.